Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everybody. So we um, are in a series that is looking at the Gospel of John. And as I was coming to the end of it, this is going to be our last uh, Sunday in this little series that we've been doing. It reminded me of uh, this little app, uh, applet. I don't even know what you would really call it. Um, if this, then that. And uh, have some of you guys heard about it? Use it, I'm sure. Lots of people are. So the, the deal is it helps you do things based on something else. And so it automates life for you. And uh, because it is a computer programming, uh, it, it actually will always do the thing that you want it to do when you give it the right input. And so you can see there's a recipe there, if this, then that. And there's the trigger, if this thing happens, then that thing is inevitable. And I'm working through the Gospel of John and this thought comes back into my mind because this is how life ought to work. And it's sort of how we think it works, right? And so, you know, you, you have a set of ideas uh, and values that you've been given. And so, you know, you've been raised, if you work hard, that your employer will appreciate you and that means you will get raises and promotions. If you work hard with uh, your kids and you raise them in a certain way, there are certain things that you would be able to expect from them. If you put in the hard work in school and you, know, you're, you, you get certain grades and you test well, then you know, you'll be able to get into the colleges. And of course, there's always exceptions to these things. Uh, but in general, we really do like that things can be predicted based on something else. So I'm reading through the Gospel of John and I think, why is it that this doesn't always seem to happen in the, in the lives of Christians. Why is it that that doesn't always seem to happen? So let, let me just take us back for a few weeks here. I'm going to go back to Good Friday for a moment in case some of you missed it. That was a night where we reflected on the work that Jesus did on the cross. And on that night, many of us had our hearts softened as we reflected yet again on the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it's Good Friday, but it's a bitter, bitter Friday. And many of us left that night feeling somehow both wounded but healed as well. Somehow encouraged by the reality and the promise of the cross. And then we had Easter. And Easter was a great day. We celebrated the promise of peace that Jesus brings into all of these different areas of life. And so if, if because of his death and burial and resurrection, he promises us this resurrection power, which allows us to live in this world in a way that is different because of his promise of peace and the experience of peace. And we get to have that peace even in the face of sickness, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of death. This was beautiful. Then last week, we talked about this guy, Charles Blondin, who crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope. This guy was pretty incredible, and uh, he did it many, many times, 
and he got crazier each time he would do it to get more uh, publicity and because he was that kind of a guy. And so the story I reminded us of last week was that he actually took a wheelbarrow across at one point. And so this is pretty cool because now he's got, you know, a way to carry things or people. And that's what he would ask people. Do you think I could make it across here? And they're like, yes, we do. Do you think I could take this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And they're like, yes, we do. And he's like, do you think I could take a person in the wheelbarrow across? And, they, and everyone goes, yes, we do. And the whole crowd is getting all excited. And he says, all right, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? And of course, nobody gets in the wheelbarrow because who would? And yet, when we got into the scriptures, we saw that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, was actually asking us to get in the wheelbarrow that Jesus has. And that was the difference between believing and trusting. We talk about belief in our day and age, but the way that the, the ancients talked about it, the way that the writers of the Bible talked about it, it has more to do with trust. And we saw John summarized the whole of the gospel of John at the end of chapter 20, and he said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the anointed one from God, that means he is the savior both of you and of humanity, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. The unique Son of God. The Son of God who brings the power of God here in our midst. God in the flesh. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is the fullness of life here and it is the promise of eternal life after death. That's the whole of the message of the Gospel of John. That's why he wrote everything he wrote. The, 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 those first 20 chapters were all to get us to this point so that you might trust, that you might get in the wheelbarrow. And this is a call for every single human being. Now, this is just by way of review of what we've been doing over the last few weeks. But if you were to study the whole book of John, you would see that he offered this message, that Jesus offered this message to all sorts of people. He, if you are an educated religious person, like Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, trust me for eternal life. If you're a social outcast, if you feel like you're on the outside of the in crowd, Jesus found you in the book of John. And he said, come, I have living water to offer you. And he gives it free of charge. If you're sick, in body or in soul. Jesus says, come. Come to me and I will heal you. If you're an eager seeker of truth or if you're a skeptic, Jesus says, come. Come. Trust me. Trust me. And there are many more people that Jesus met in the pages of this gospel. And some people were stopped in their tracks and they, and they trusted and others wandered away confused, hopefully to return at another time. Others ignored him completely, and, and many angrily turned away from him. Some scoffed at his message, some mocked, some embraced Jesus and found the promised life. So then, last week, we also took a little survey, trying to assess 
where we were at as a congregation. So how many people? It was a simple survey. On the one side, it asked, if you were to die today, the first question, I should say, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And there's three possible answers that we offered. Yes, no, and maybe. And there you go. Yes, no, maybe. You might answer, maybe, because you're not even sure there is a heaven. Or you might say, I'm not really sure if I'm going to be getting in because I kind of know some of the stuff that I've done. If you've said no, it's because you, you could also not believe in heaven. Or you might also say, well, no, I'm not getting in because I, I actually don't feel like God would be able to love and forgive me in the way. And then a bunch of you said yes. Now, of all of those who said yes, some of you gave reasons that were not in line with what John was telling us in his gospel. Some of you said things like, well, yeah, I'm getting to heaven because I'm a really good person. And that's the dominant view of most every one of the world religions. It's just not the biblical message. It's not the message of Jesus. So if you said, yes, I'm going to get to heaven because I think I'm pretty good. We did the whole scale thing and we talked about that last week. And you can check that out online if you're interested. Others said yes, but they gave, you gave some vague answer like on the next question. The next question was, what would you say when you get to heaven? Why should God let you into his great heaven? And that's, that's where people would say, well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. Or others might say, well, you know, faith, just generally. Or some would say, well, I think because of love. Still all ideas that we mostly have gotten from John's gospel, whether we realize it or not. But it misses the crucial element that the role Jesus would play in it. Remember, he was the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we compiled all of those very carefully this week, and we found out that in our congregation, 75% of you seem to trust in Jesus as your Savior, 25% trust in something else. You may not even say that you trust in something else, but based on your second answer, it seems as if maybe you're trusting in something else. At the very least, you're fuzzy on what part Jesus plays as Messiah. So there's a disconnect between what, the, what John wanted you to understand and wanted you to know and what you actually do know. This is pretty normal. We've done this over the years, and this is around what, what we've seen. Sometimes we get as high as 30 35%, and sometimes it's a little bit lower. But this is pretty standard fare. Now... If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm not really sure where I'm at with Jesus, then check out those old messages and come and talk to us. And we really, really, really want to kind of like work through this with you and walk alongside you with it. We love doing this. We love answering questions. And we kind of love this opportunity to, to see and help a person take another step in their faith journey. But 75% of you do actually trust in Jesus. So if this, then what? If this, then what? And it seems like the gospel of John was supposed to end with the text that we looked at last week. That's where John says, hey, so you know, everything else, like this was crazy, this was amazing, and I write these things so that you might have life. And he started the gospel that way, he ended the gospel that way, so it feels like it should end right there at the end of chapter 20. In fact, scholars for many, many, many decades have said that was the real ending of John, that whatever happened after that, that somebody must have added. 
But the ancient manuscripts, which we looked at last week, which are trustworthy and reliable, especially here in the Gospel of John, there's no evidence that 20 and 21 were ever, were, were, were ever separated in the manuscript evidence we have throughout history. So what is it that's going on where John ends the gospel, but then does this last little chapter? I think it's his version of if this, then that. If you take these first 20 chapters, then chapter 21 is the natural next step. So he tells us, the beginning of chapter 21, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. I love this because his first appearances, he was actually in a closed room, locked door in Jerusalem. Now he's getting out among the people, the people who are far from God, out among the disciples. He's out in Galilee. He's out on the shore. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. This is an interesting way that these are kind of phrased. So here we see that the, the, the disciples and Jesus finally getting out of where they were. And soon we're going to find out that they're going to go to whole, the whole world. They're going to get out of, of Galilee even, and they're going to get out of Israel, and they're going to get out of even the Middle East as they continue to take this message of Christ further and further. And the Christian church in America, you know, we, we struggle in this area uh, more than many would imagine because we really do love our, our buildings and our locations and our events, and we, we love gathering Christians up together, but we're not so good at getting them out in the world. Something happened. It's not the way it was originally designed. And I think that's, now this is a little bit esoteric, but here, here, here I go. So there are seven disciples listed here. So now this is so cool. Seven, we know, is one of these symbolic numbers. And this is getting a little weird. So just, you know, I don't want to like, I'm not going to like drive a stake in here and say, thus saith the Lord. But we know already from the rest of the Gospel of John that he's been using numbers to teach us other lessons. It's just one of the things he does. He's a, he, he takes more a symbolic approach to many of these things. I'm not saying there weren't seven. I'm just saying he highlights it for some effect. Remember, he also wrote the book of Revelation, loaded with all types of numbers that we can learn something from. We also know that John ties everything back to Genesis in this repetitive pattern of reminding us of the first of the creation stories because there's a new creation story unfolding. So there are seven here, but it's not seven that we would have expected. That's what's sort of curious here. He lists them, so he wants us to understand who was there, but it's not the original 12 disciples who were the apostles. Now it's 11 because Judas, uh, but it, you do have seven, but it, you would think they, were a, they would be a subset of the remaining 11, but they're not even that. Nathaniel isn't one of the 11, and we haven't seen him except at the very beginning of John. So Nathaniel is a guy that shows up wrapping up the whole of the Gospel of John from the very beginning, and now he shows up again at the end. But he lists names, and then he gives us two other disciples were there without the names. What was that? Why? How would you like to be the two other disciples? Hey, man, like all of these really important people were there. Even Nathaniel was there, and then some other people. 
Like, I don't even know who those other people were. But I don't think that's what's actually going on here. I think what he is doing is he's saying, these are the other disciples. And together, these seven are the disciples. This is the group of followers of Jesus now and forever. And there's a whole lot of connections that we see between the beginning of the Gospel of John and what we're about to see unfold. And I think what he is telling us is that this is something that is, this is a message for all of those who follow Jesus. Again, a little esoteric, a little outside of like what the clear text says, but I think it is probably in here. So what is it, what is the action that results from the trigger of trusting in Jesus for the whole of disciples then and now? I think we see it here when the next section starts. He says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. This is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, if you're a fisherman. Do we have any fishermen here? Can you imagine all? No, not a single person here fishes. All right, I see one, two. I get a few people who fish. This is so sad. You've been out all night and not a single fish. In fact, you have seven completely useless fishermen on this boat at this point, right? So they're out there in a boat all night long and nada, nothing. Now, it's interesting, again, because he, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John himself being a fisherman, Peter being a fisherman, we, hear, we read here, it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. What's so mind-blowing here is that the, the gospel of John began with Nathaniel, when Jesus calls them and says, hey, I will make you fishers of men. Nathaniel shows up again at the ending of John, and here they're actually fishing. But of course, something more than fishing is going on here. It's part of the reason John's giving us so many, many d details here. He's saying, listen, Jesus is here. He showed up, and he is making these disciples, all of the disciples, fishers of men. So, here we are fishing at the dawn of a new age. Early in the morning, is a, it's a grammatical uh, structure in here that sounds more like it was becoming morning. And so you can imagine, here's Jesus showing up, not locked in a room anymore, but instead here the sun is starting to, to touch everything because a new day is dawning. In fact, a new day is dawning on the disciples right now in this moment as Jesus begins to frame for them what it is that they're being called to do next, which is, of course, become fishers of people. To get out into the world and to tell the story of Jesus. Now, some of you are going to say, I would love to share my faith, but I am simply not up for the task. I have insecurities. I don't know enough. I'm worried. What if I offend? I will offend. I have offended. Once bitten, twice shy. You have all of these reasons where you feel inadequate for the task. And I have to tell you this. That is absolutely true. 
You are absolutely inadequate for the task. And that's really great news. I am woefully inadequate for the task of becoming a fisher for souls. And yet, that's a large point, a big point of the text. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. I have no idea why we get all of those details from John, but it's, I'm sure it's something interesting. Uh, maybe someone can help me with that. Um, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards when they landed. They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So, so here we get Peter. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to shore uh, with his cloak around him, 100 yards. He knows it's Jesus, impetuous as always. He just, he rushes over to go and see him now. And he leaves everybody else to do the work of hauling the fish in, which is also very funny. Uh, and so here they are hauling these fish in. And we have Peter who sees Jesus sitting here next to a charcoal fire. Now, this word is interesting. It's a, it's a word that doesn't show up very often. In fact, in the Gospel of John, this word for burning coals or a fire, it only shows up twice in the whole Gospel of John. It's an exceptionally rare word. But it did show up just a couple chapters earlier at another time when Peter was standing next to a fire. So here's Peter now sitting next to the fire with Jesus. But the last time it happened, it said Peter, Jesus was at his trial. It was before his crucifixion. Peter had said, I'll go with you to death. And Jesus said, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And one of the, the girls who was there near the fire said, aren't you one of this man's disciples too, are you? Or you aren't one of these, no, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. I am not. It was cold. The servants and the officials stood around a charcoal fire they had made to keep warm. And Peter also was standing there warming himself. It's hard to imagine that John isn't trying to tie these scenes together. He's trying to say, here's Peter standing again next to a fire. But this is a very different fire because the first fire is where Peter denied his Savior. It's where he said, I don't know the guy. I don't know Jesus. I don't understand. I don't even, I, I might have a Galilean accent, but I don't know Jesus. You've never seen me with him. He even curses and says, no, it's not me. And Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter must be feeling woefully inadequate for the task that Jesus is assigning to the disciples. I wonder if Peter's saying, I'm already out, guys. I'm already disqualified. I denied him in his moment of greatest need. I denied him. But this, this is the fire of failure and regret. This is the fire of redemption. This is the fire where your new story begins. This fire this is the fire where your old story is being put to death. I think this matters for us because it was right after this 
where Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus is like, I mean, Peter's like, yeah, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, you, you, you know, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And it says that Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? This must have been painfully awkward, especially when Peter realizes what's going on. Three times, it says at that moment that Peter was sorrowful because he knew what was happening. He had denied Jesus three times, and Jesus three times is saying to him, Peter, do you love me? And he's saying, yeah, I love you, Jesus. But you know the reality of things. You know how inadequate I am. You know how often I fail. You literally are reminding me of it right now, sitting here at this fire. And he says, go, feed my sheep. He restores Peter. And he calls all of that failure up in the front of Peter. And he says, Peter, the failure isn't what's going to define you. Feed my sheep. You might say, you know, listen, I do not feel up for this task. And that is true. It is also irrelevant. Because Jesus is sending you out and he's saying, Feed my sheep. And how is this at all possible? It's because we are fishing for souls in the power of Jesus. This, that's what this, this part of it's all about. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. I mean, what? Like, why would these fishermen even do that? It's craziness. The fish don't live on one side of a boat. The boats are like this wide. They're not these massive boats. It wouldn't even matter if it was. Throw it on the right side. Because it isn't ultimately going to be your creativity. And it isn't ultimately going to be your wisdom. And it isn't ultimately going to be how good you are at defending the faith. And it isn't ultimately going to be how qualified you are in in all of the, the precise answers that you can give. And it isn't how smart you are versus how smart they are, the people that you're sharing with. It's about the power of Jesus. And it's about your willingness to do what he has called you to do and trust just recently, I was talking to someone and they said to me, oh, so-and-so, it's a family member. They would never, ever trust in Jesus. And I'm like, ow, that hurts. Think about that. That means that you, in your wisdom and sensitivity, would, but they wouldn't? Wow, that's the height of arrogance. Trust me. If you've decided to follow Jesus, there's all sorts of people out there who will also trust and follow Jesus because you came because of the power of Jesus working in your life and they also will come because of the power of Jesus. His power isn't limited in that way. So we're not fishing in our own strength. I love that he tells them, he says, the other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards when They landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Why I love this is because there's already fish there. Jesus already showed up with fish and bread. He's already got the thing covered. And then he says one of the craziest things, Bring some of the fish you've just caught, as if they had much to do with it. It was Jesus who caught those fish. They may as well, Jesus may have well just commanded the fish to jump in the boat. He told them where they had caught nothing all night. Lower it, bring it up. And somehow, 
in the economy of God, he credits them to them. Bring me the fish you caught. Because when you're trusting in the power of Jesus, not in your own strength, not in your own way, then in fact you are participating in the catching of the fish. I love this picture because it's, it's, it's the work of God and it's the work of obedience and love in our hearts and together they come and, and the work of Jesus is being accomplished in the world. And so here we are, right? We, we, we trust in Jesus, right? I mean, this is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. On Easter, we all proclaimed, he is risen. He is risen indeed. We had responses like this over and over again. Do we trust that he is the good shepherd like he promises in the gospel? Do we trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Do we trust that if you follow Jesus that you will have life and you will escape death? Ultimate, eternal death. You will escape. If that is what you believe then sharing your story is the natural and inevitable result. The message of the cross is tied to the mission of God. It has to be. How in the world could we say we believe these things and not actually do those things? It would make absolutely no sense. Michelangelo, and of course, the famous painter, he painted the Sistine Chapel. There's the one that we often see, right? Creation of humanity and all the stories from Genesis up in the ceiling. But there's an equally famous one here at the back. It's enormous. It was painted, I think, 20 years after the rest of the Sistine Chapel. So it shows a lot of development on Michelangelo's part. You can see this is, this is a little scale. These are the people. So you can get a sense as to how enormous this painting is. And it's called The Last Judgment. And it captures the whole of what we've been saying in one of the most beautiful of all paintings ever, ever created by many scholars. We have the angels who are announcing with trumpets that the end has come, that Jesus is returning and that he's wrapping this whole thing up. He is Messiah, son of God. He has power to save, which he does. And so we have Jesus in the center and you notice eyes all around him. Everybody can't peel their gaze away from Jesus who is now about to bring all of this to an end. And he does it by calling out the dead in Christ. And they are being taken up from earth, given new bodies. They end up on the upper left-hand side of the painting in the presence of God. But then there's a judgment seat. And in the judgment seat are those who have refused to trust in the work of Jesus. This is what the gospel of John tells us. This is what your faith tells you. This is what you've been saved from. If this, then what? Will you tell the story of Jesus? We think of the whole of this gospel story. At the end, it says that Peter climbed back into the boat. He dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 scholars. Look at this, and they don't know exactly what it means, but it has something to do with the whole of the nations. Every single fish that was meant to be caught from every single tribe and tongue and nation. And even with so many, the net was not torn. Not one will be lost. 
The power of Jesus guarantees it. He ensures it. He is calling you to participate in it. The whole of this chapter has been a charge to you and to me, an encouragement. See, Jesus is trustworthy and he is tell-worthy. Will you do it? Will I do it? And don't worry if you feel inadequate and don't fret if you feel like a failure and don't doubt for a moment that God will use you. He will. Go feed my sheep. It isn't your power that will save. So tell everyone you can about the love that Jesus has for them. Father, we're asking that you would stir up in our hearts the kind of love that caused you to send your son, our savior, to earth to die on a cross. I pray, Father, that you would so pierce our own apathy and you would strengthen, bolster our fears that, Lord, you would be the one who gets the glory because we have trusted in your power to do this great work, to join you in your mission. We're asking it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.